Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, how you look at the commandments really begins to change your perspective on them, uh, what they're for, and how we go about observing them. Because if we understand God's commandments as just a fiat, something that he does just on a whim because he has control and he can make us do anything he wants, then I think we're missing the point. And I think some of us actually do maybe view the commandments that way. We're going to be unpacking that just a little bit today. Um, I think we all kind of know situations and we have maybe had uh, somebody who has a little bit, been given a little bit of authority in their life, but then they take it too far. Uh, do you remember by any chance the television show The Office? I don't know if Pastor Bob is watching this at home. I might not be invited back next week. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> if you remember the show The Office, Dwight Schrute, uh, interesting character. There's an episode where he is uh, promoted, if you will, to um, assistant to the manager. Not assistant manager. That has too much authority. He's just assistant to the manager. Actually, he's only acting assistant to the manager for a while. But in that short time that he's been given that authority, he takes it to the extreme, and he does things like he changes the lunch times for people so that they don't have too much time to visit, you know, because that's not productive. And he assigns everybody their own 21-digit copier code. And so there's a scene in there where everybody's lined up at the copier as the person is trying to get the 21-digit code right. Now, that's to, too much authority taken to an extreme. Uh, I hope you've not had a manager like that, but some of our managers over the years may have felt a little bit like that. It also makes me think back to my college days. I, I went to a university that had a lot of fraternities, and um, it was actually very popular there. And there was a season of the year, if you were a freshman and you were trying to get into a fraternity during this pledge week, the upperclassmen, they had total authority and control. They could tell you, do my laundry. They could tell you, wear only green today. Get my coffee, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I think that just those are some examples of just enforcing unbridled power with only a selfish regard. It's actually immature, lest we think that that's how our God uses his power, his authority in our life. And actually, the rules that he gives us aren't arbitrary, but they're, and they're not serving him. They're actually for us, to bless us, words to be loved by, to help us, to strengthen us, and protect us. So maybe you've looked at the commandments that way as just some under-the-thumb divine power over us. Another way that people often look at the commandments is just to take away our fun, right? To keep us from having too much fun. Uh, thinking about that, I think back to uh, a year ago, our son um, was married in Cabo, San Lucas, Mexico. And uh, the year before that, Rochelle and I, my wife Rochelle, she's back there somewhere, she had we had gone to Cabo, uh, got to know the, the parents of the bride a little bit better, and we were kind of scouting out locations for the wedding. And what we learned, we're actually kind of spoiled here in this area of Southern California where you can just kind of go into the water. But if you're on the Pacific side of Cabo, particularly down towards the end of the, the what they call Land's End, at the end of the, the Baja Peninsula there, then you can't go in the water. They've got these red flags all around to tell you don't swim and hear, and if you look and you watch those waves, you don't really want to be in there. Uh, and so, again, if we wanted to, we could, we could view those signs as just kind of a rule that was put there by some domineering tyrant to take away our fun, or 
we can see them for what they are, and that's a guideline for our safety. They're there for us. And I think that's really something important for us to realize is that everything our God does, whether it's from the Ten Commandments all the way to his own son dying on the cross, is for us. He does it all out of love for us. And so as we're talking about these commandments, we're talking not only about what they command, but why they're commanded. So let's begin with the first commandment from Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Uh, if you can see it on the screen, if you're able to, if you would read this out loud with me, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. God is here saying, as Maria very, very well did in the uh, children's message, he's saying, I'm your one and only. You are to have no other gods and no one before me. Our, our catechism says it this way. We are to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Nothing comes in front of him. And I don't know how you are when you're driving. Do you like when people cut in front of you? I don't. I really don't. And I think back to my younger days. Actually, I was just talking to my brother, and he was talking about how expensive his 20-something-year-old son is. Uh, I had very expensive insurance. I was in my 20s, and I was driving a, a five-liter Camaro T-Tops. I really liked it. Those were the days. Traded that in for a minivan when I got married. Also, my wife said, I don't want to read about you in the paper. <laughs> driving so dangerously. I was living in Washington, D.C., working for uh, the government, the Department of Defense down there for an internship. And I remember this, this Mustang GT pulled in front of me, and he had the license plate that read, you'll lose, U-L-L-O-O-Z, uh, you'll lose. Well, I'm not really proud of what ensued, but let's just say so began the race to the front of the line. I don't like line cutters. And, and perhaps maybe the best example, this is back, back to that trip when I told you we went to Cabo to scout out locations for our son's wedding. When we were returning home and we were going to the international airport, it was a very, very busy airport, we, we saw somebody that I think has is, is got to be the, the most prime example, line cutter extraordinaire. Somehow he managed in a busy airport to get into the down escalator between Rochelle and me. I don't, who does that? You know, I mean, it's not like we were far apart. And then after we, right off the, line, right off the elevator, you get into a line to go through immigration and... And he was like, Rochelle, by the way, she doesn't let people in front of her as easily as I do, apparently. So she's, she's dodging. And finally, I'm like, just, just let, him, let him go. He's obviously with those people in front. And then I realized after a few turns, that was this guy's MO. He was just getting in front of everybody. And then I started to be kind of mad that we let him in front. Ah, but, and he got ahead of us at immigration. But when we got to customs, then you have to pick a line. We picked better. And we managed to get... <laughs> Yeah, I should get out to the taxis before he did. Sweet justice. Cheaters never prosper, neither do line cutters. You and I don't like line cutters, but you know who hates line cutters even more? And that is God. And that's what he's talking about in this commandment. Don't let anyone or anything cut in front of me. I'm your one and only. And you can look at it another way, too. Don't, not just to let, don't let anything cut in front of me. I would also say don't let anything come between you and me. You should be so close to me that you're right behind me. And so 
That's what we're talking about today in this first commandment. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. But he expounds on it a little bit further with kind of a 1A. And, oops, I went the wrong way. and he says, you should not make for yourself an idol. Well, what's an idol? It's something that you make for yourself, something you make for yourself to worship. Oh. The prophet Isaiah, and um, Joe read that for us a moment ago, and he talks about this in particular when he says, all who make idols are nothing. All who make idols. Makes me think back to when uh, uh, Rochelle and I had this opportunity to go to the Holy Land uh, a few years ago. Actually, it's getting to be a number of years ago now. Uh, we were able to go, uh, and the, all the Bible lands too, not just to Israel and Jerusalem, but um, here we were in Ephesus, and this is just some of the many, many, many pictures. You know how it is when you go on a trip like that. This is some remnants of the processional way in Ephesus. What, what we learned is that the whole town is kind of built around idol worship uh, to, to, the, to the Greek goddess Artemis. And you kind of realize that, what, that, that, that red line there that goes kind of into... The, the temple to Artemis is just outside of the, of the big city part, and they would parade in. You can see there's a little statue. They would have a, a big statue of Artemis. They paraded in, gathering everybody to go to um, temple worship. And that was really the, the, the lifeblood of the town, was the, was the selling, was the business, all the associated around this idol worship. So much so that Acts chapter 19 records for us when Demetrius, a silversmith, started a riot, uh, likely in, there were, the town is so big, there's actually these two huge theaters. Um, since Acts 19 says he gathered everyone together in the town, maybe it was in the large, amphithe the large amphitheater there, to start a riot against Paul. Um, so much so that they shouted for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so what was getting them so upset was if Paul's work was successful in converting the Ephesians to Christianity, it would hurt their, their idol business, right? People would stop buying idols, and so their business would become idle. The different spelling. If you're, uh, but drum kick over there, please. No, it's, it's just, a, you know, that's what... That's what the town was about, an idol worship, and that's kind of what we think of, right? It's a statue to some sort of a god, um, but really idols are something that are made out of human hands. It could be silver, it could be wood, it could be iron, um, or something else. And what the prophet Isaiah is saying is the person who makes an idol is nothing. That person who's fashioning that is an imperfect human being just like you and me. They're, they're nothing. They're mere mortals. They have no power. They have no authority over you. As a matter of fact, we remind ourselves of that on Ash Wednesday when, I, I'm not sure if you have that tradition here at Community, but of receiving ashes on the forehead and um, being reminded, remember, man, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You are nothing. Except, of course, made in the image of God. In that sense, we are. But in our, in our flesh, we're nothing. And Isaiah says, all those who make idols are nothing. And the things that they treasure are worthless. They're dead, lifeless, powerless pieces of wood, metal, or stone. There's actually 
two components to idolatry. The first is, it is something that we can fashion, we can strive after, we can obtain or actually possess. It's something we, we want to, to hold or have in some sort of way. But also, an idol is something that we treasure, something that we elevate or idolize in our life. So here's the nuance. The idol is not the thing itself, but the worth or the value that you assign to it. You might want to write that down. What makes an idol is the worth that you assign to it. The thing in of itself is just a thing, but when the heart begins to embrace it and it cuts in line in front of God, that's idolatry. So Isaiah says, all those who make idols are nothing, uh, the things that they treasure are worthless, and those who would speak up for them or follow after them, they're blind, they're ignorant, they don't know uh, their own shame. In other words, they're even ignorant, maybe even ignorant, to how they're idolizing, foolishly idolizing this thing. My question for you today would be, do you have any idols that creep up on you? And you might be thinking, well, I don't have any statues at home. No, but do you have idols, things that you've let come between you and God, things that you've let become more important than God in your life? And let me help you here. These things that become idols in your life, they may be good things, Let's take, for example, money. Money in itself is, is not inherently evil. It's not even inherently an idol, but it's how it's used. It's how it's uh, prized. God gives us the ability to earn money, and he wants us to use that to provide for our family, to help other people. And in that sense, it's good. But when it begins to take root in our hearts so that we love it and we treasure it and we value it above anything else, then it's an idol. So money is not an idol. It's our greed that makes money an idol. Uh, another one, uh, think about sex or sexuality. God is the one who's given us human sexuality. He, he intends it for joy and procreation in the context of husband and wife. In Genesis, we read he made mankind male and female, and he, he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. And Jesus confirms this in the New Testament when he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. But I think you and, you, you and I recognize that we live in a culture that doesn't always see it this way, do they? In fact, in our cultures, in many ways, it's dominated by lust and indulgence. We kind of see it everywhere. So it's actually our lust that makes sex an idol. One more. Just think of our physical bodies. God has given us these bodies uh, for our good, and he tells us that these are the temples of the Holy Spirit, so we are to care for them. But sometimes we can take it to an extreme and how we get carried away in caring for our bodies and our bodies then become an idol. It's our vanity that makes our bodies an idol. And we could go on and on, couldn't we? But here's the thing. These things in and of themselves are not bad. They're actually good things that get turned into God things and become, so become bad things. That's kind of a definition of, a, of, of an idol or idolatry, is when good things get turned into God things. In other words, they take the place of God in your life, and they become bad things. So, idolatry is a sin. We all suffer with it. And what we'll learn in the coming weeks is this first commandment is actually kind of a root of all the other commandments that we'll be unpacking. Anything can be an idol because anything can take the place of God in our life. And what we're doing, again, um, 
the commandment says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. We, we fashion it. See, when we were made in the image of God, in Latin, that's the imagio dei. God has given us the ability. It's kind of like being his children. We have the ability to create, to make something new. But as with everything that God gives us, he intends it to be used for our good and his glory. But we abuse it when we use that ability to create and that creative power to make idols. It's sinful and it's ultimately foolish. And again, that Old Testament reading that we heard this morning, um, the prophet Isaiah is making a point. It's a little bit maybe uh, kind of, you know, uh, hidden, if you will, in this text. So I'd just like to read it for you. Just a couple of verses of it again. He says, The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat, he eats his fill, he also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. So think about what's being said here. You've got a carpenter, he's got a piece of wood, he cuts it in, into two pieces. Some of it he uses the way God intended, to serve him, to warm himself, to heat his food. And, and he even says, ah, this is a good thing that is, is serving me. But with the other half, he makes an idol that he then begins to serve, even to the point of saying, save me. And the prophet is making, I think, a very clear illustration here. It's absurd. And it's exactly what we do with something useful, maybe not wood or iron or stone, but it could be money or sexuality or our physical bodies or many other things. And it, and it, it moves from serving us to us serving it, even expecting it to save us and make our life have meaning. It's foolish. So... Hopefully you're getting that point. I just want to leave you with two kind of things as we uh, go home, um, as we kind of finish this message. And that is, we're not ready to go home yet. We still have a little bit more to do. But uh, two, th two reasons that God commands us against idolatry, okay? The first, and they're very simple. The first is that idolatry is cunning. It works in very subtle, very sneaky ways. It takes one thing and it turns it into something it was never intended to be. All right, and if you got the sound ready, it might come out a little bit loud, so you might need to adjust this here. It kind of reminds me of this German commercial. If you speak German, you might be able to understand it natively, but the subtitles are at the bottom. Got a little intro. It was. Uh... Sag mal, Papa, habe ich dich noch gar nicht gefragt? Wie kommst du eigentlich mit dem neuen iPad zurecht, was wir dir zum Geburtstag geschenkt haben? Gut. This is Dad, how is the iPad I gave you for your birthday? What app? How are the apps going? What app are you talking about? <laughs> She's mortified. Huh? <laughs> All right. For those of us who love technology, they actually say in the beginning, no iPads were harmed in the making of this commercial. Uh, taking something that, you know, an iPad, it's an incredible tool. It can be very powerful when it's used correctly, but if it's used for something it was never intended to do, it's foolish and even destructive. And like I said, money might be an example of that. It, it, it's intended for good to serve, to help people. But if, you, if, it, if it's used, maybe let's say to control and manipulate others, 
becomes destructive and foolish. And what's worse is not only is idolatry cunning to, to trick you and to sneak in, but what's going to eventually, what it's going to do with its cunningness is it's going to eventually try to ensnare you and enslave you. And you might see how really every form of addiction, everyone really is idolatry at its heart. Uh, take drug addiction, for example. It may have started because of peer pressure as a child or maybe pain relief as an adult, and that addiction has crept up on them, and then all of a sudden it has a hold on them in such a way that it's not just something they do, but it's actually in full control of their life. That addiction, that idol then begins to decide their priorities. It decides their choices, ultimately their morality and the way that they're going to live. And then this new God in their life, if they misbehave, again from the perspective of, the, of this new God in their life, this idol, then they're going to have punishment. They're going to have pain. And, and in the case of addiction, it's through maybe some sort of withdrawal it's a very cunning idolatry that sneaks up on us and it ultimately gain, desires to gain control in our life. And while many of us may not battle an addiction that's named, you know, like alcoholism or, or gambling compulsion or something like that, we, every one of us battles an addiction to sin. It's a constant temptation to give in to idolatry. And the second point is, I think you and I need to know that not only is idolatry tricky and try to have control in our life, but it's ultimately disappointing. It never delivers what it promises. An idol cannot produce the thing that it offers. It can't deliver to us the blessings that we want. So we always end up shortchanged. Idolatry always overpromises and underdelivers. Success promises you satisfaction in your life. You make success the idol in your life, and do you end up satisfied when you achieve success? No. It's left so many people empty who've achieved worldly success. Uh, sex promises thrills, uh, but it has left so many alone and hurt. Money promises security, and yet tragedy and misfortune still strikes, regardless of how much money you have. Idolatry takes all these things that we can see, taste, touch, and experience with our senses, and it turns them into gods we worship. And ultimately, we're worshiping a mirage something that has no power and cannot give what it promises. It's an image of something we've made up in our mind. But I want to leave you with this. The Bible says that there is an image who we can worship. You may not remember this, but the Apostle Paul in Colossians talks about Christ this way. It says Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, where God our Heavenly Father could have chosen to remain invisible, something that we, we never could see and could never grasp. Instead, in His goodness, He chose to reveal Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, who took on our human flesh and became man so that we could see Him, we could embrace Him, we could worship Him, we can receive Him here, and we will today. Not just a, a mirage image, but allowing us to see the God that we worship, and he's ultimately the only one that's worship of our worthy, our praise, and our devotion. And whereas idolatry is cunning, it uh, um, overpromises and underdelivers. Jesus, I don't know. Oh, I went backwards. Sorry about that. I'm like, I wasn't to that point. <laughs> Where idolatry is cunning, sneaks up on us and wants to trick us. Jesus is the Word of God who came full of grace and truth. Scripture says, uh, tells us. No trickery. He's not trying to deceive us. He's not trying to enslave us. Rather, he's trying to give us life and set us free. 
with his truth. That's Jesus Christ. Not an idol, not a cunning, but loving. And when it comes to an idol disappointing, right, overpromising and underdelivering, uh, not Jesus. The Holy uh, Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul in Ephesians to write this incredible benediction, speaking of Jesus. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Not a, not a disappointment when we worship him and serve him, but instead giving us more than we could ask or imagine. So I hope now that we see this commandment not just as a list of thou shalt not, but as a gift of God to protect us from false gods with dangerous motives to move us toward a life of worship, grace, truth, and freedom. A life where God is actually not limiting us and taking away our fun, but is actually giving us power and, and freedom and a life of abundance for his glory. That's why God says, I come first in your life. Let nothing stand before me. So with this commandment, you and I are given a choice. We can either live as God's holy children, set apart, living differently, or we can be enslaved and hopeless slaves of an idol. Or let me put it this way. Which words do you feel more loved by? Hopeless, ensnared, tricked, deceived? or abundant power, grace, and truth. Those are the words that God knows we are loved by. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love and kindness, that you give us commands that are boundaries and helpful guides for our lives. But you don't do it simply because you have the power. You do it because you love us, because we are each your precious child, and so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, place a clarity in our hearts that nothing, nothing would come before you in our lives. May you be the one and only one we worship and adore. In Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.